Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women on life after 50 who are unafraid to age out loud. I'm your host, Katie Fogarty. For many women, the most seismic shift in identity as we move along the human continuum is not from baby to girl to woman, but rather from one into two, as you first become a mother. Overnight, your atoms rearrange and your priorities and world shift. Of course, not every woman becomes a mother, and not every mother experiences the transformation the same way. My guest today is author, activist, and mother of five, Jody Patterson. When Jody's three-year-old son, Penelope, said, Mama, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, his declaration set her family on a path of discovery and transformation, one that she chronicled with uncommon beauty in her book, The Bold World, a memoir of family and transformation. And Jody went through her own transformation, moving from beauty entrepreneur to becoming a globally recognized activist, chair of the Human Rights Campaign Foundation Board, our nation's largest LGBT organization, and she's a sought-after speaker on topics of radical parenting, identity, and gender. Welcome, Jody. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, Jody, for listeners who have not yet read your book or heard your story, can you, can you share a snapshot of your family journey? Oh, yeah. Oh, so <laughs> I'm not even sure if it's a snapshot that I can share. Um, just to give you some uh, perspective, I have five children. And so this, the journey is so deep. Um, but essentially, I was concerned with my third child. Um, being a mom of multiples, I know that children, are they differ in, in many ways, how they learn and how they develop and their personality types. But my third child, whom we named Penelope, was always within the first two years crying and screaming with bed uh, wetting and reoccurring nightmares and nail biting. Um, Penelope had become even sort of a bully at home, pushing siblings and then pushing friends at the park. Um, and, and most of Penelope's language within the first year and, and second year was protest. So it was always no, no mama, no, no to everything. Just basic things like getting dressed, uh, brushing hair, brushing teeth. And so as a parent, I really tried to um, come up with a solution and to fix the problem. And I did everything from, you know, maybe more, we, I thought maybe we need more love for this middle child. Uh, maybe we forgot to read enough stories. I um, spent carved out time just to be alone with Penelope. Um, there was a period where I thought, okay, tough loves. So maybe let, let me try spanking, which is not what I like to do. Um, but nothing really worked. Penelope insisted on cutting Penelope's hair, um, wearing blue jeans, wearing um, boots instead of Mary Jane's. And those those little switches, you know, softened Penelope's face a bit, but they weren't really getting at the, the root of the problem as, again. And one day, I remember it was when Penelope was almost three, Penelope had stormed through the house, tearing things down, pushing Big Brother um, over, pushing blocks, throwing blocks around. And I just picked Penelope up and took Penelope to um, bed room and sat on the floor. And I, for the first time, asked the question, what's wrong? I just said, why are you so angry, baby? What's really wrong? And it was like I'd asked the million dollar question, Penelope opened up, tears started flowing. And Penelope said, well, mama, because everyone thinks I'm a girl and I'm not, I am a boy. What was your first so reaction that was, to that? How did, <laughs> how did that land? 
you know, I thought it was my fault. I thought, wow, here's a young girl who um, doesn't want to be a girl. So it landed horribly on me. I thought I had forgotten to raise a, a strong feminist. And that sounds funny to people because she was my child. He was only three at the time. Penelope was only three at the time. But that's when my mom started teaching me about women, strong women who've changed the world. Shirley Chisholm, Billie Jean King, Nina Simone, Audre Lorde, um, Dr. Maya Angelou. These were women that I grew up knowing about. And I really, in that split second, was um, angry with myself for not raising a proud feminist. Now, of course, Penelope, years later, I understand Penelope to be something entirely different. Um, and that took a lot of that took a lot of time. I mean, in in that moment, we stayed in that room for a few hours, and Penelope just opened up and told me everything that I had not understood before. Penelope said, "Mama, I love you, but I don't want to be you. I want to be Papa. I don't want tomorrow to come because tomorrow my body will look like yours." Um, Penelope even said, I want a doctor to make me a peanut. And those are, I mean, I'd never heard anything like that before. So it was, when you ask how it, how it landed, it hit all the wrong notes for me. Um, and it took, you know, years to get to a point where I am now, but I do recall leaving that room with Penelope and not wanting to use the word she again. You heard what he was saying and, and, and you, you, just a minute ago, you said it took a number of years to get to where I am now. How did you evolve your understanding of gender? How did you evolve your understanding of your third child and, and what your family unit was going to look like when you learned this information? Well, I did. And I was, I'm a reader, so I was... Um... You know, I geek out on Malcolm Gladwell, and he says 10,000 hours, and I've read you know, many of his books. So I just went and did what 10,000 hours can do. Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours, and you can become an expert. <laughs> and so I went on the internet, and I um, Googled the word transgender. I looked up the and studied stories of other families who were raising trans kids. Um, Jazz Jennings is a very well-known um, trans teen, trans kid at the time, and now she's a young adult, young woman. And I just really tried to see the stories of people who identify as trans. So I did that. I also looked up doctors and listened to what the doctors were saying and the hospitals and the therapists and the psychologists. Um, and I looked, I invited myself to conferences, their national conferences that happen almost every month um, around the topic of gender and gender diversity. So I sat in the back. A uh, row of many conferences feeling very awkward, but I was really trying to understand something that I had never even given any thought to because I, fe I felt if I didn't, I would not be in the, in the same place where my son was. And I wanted to be in that same world where my son was. And so, although I didn't necessarily, I would not have chosen this or even predicted this. Um, I was in this moment. And so I thought, okay, let me just learn as much as possible because it was really about undoing all of these negative stereotypes, you know, that I had subconsciously built up around folks that are not, um, that don't fall into a very neat category of girl and boy. 
And opening, um, just opening your mind and, and, and learning all that you didn't know. Um, it's so I, I'm inspired by the fact that you like turn to books and that you put yourself into these spaces. When we spoke earlier, you um, talked about how you uh, bring the lens of mothering into every space that you go to. Can you can you talk a little bit about what that means and what mothering means to you? So I'm I'm a mom of five, and I am always. Um, it's just my personality type to be very much a part of my home. I've always had a job. I've been an entrepreneur for years. Um, I've traveled the world. I have been in the fashion industry, the music industry, the beauty industry, the fashion industry, nightlife. And throughout all of that, I've been mothering, you know, making babies, birthing babies, nursing babies, raising babies. So, and I found when I look back over time, most of my decisions, if not all, have been in relationship to my children. So how, you know, the jobs I choose, um, oftentimes, you know, connect with where I am with my family at that moment, how I vote, you know, how I marry, how I divorce, uh, where we live. These are all decisions that I do based on my kids. And um, I see mothering as building. So I'm ironically, you know, as, as, as deep as I am into motherhood, I'm not a snuggly, uh, soft <laughs> mother after a certain point in their, in their lives, like around eight years old, I'm like, okay, kids, let's got to be either on the path or off the path. You got to really fully invest in this family. Um, and so my mother, my mothering takes the shape of more like architectural building. I'm trying to build the family, um, build the child. And so I look at it, um, the same way it, it, for me, it's a form of leadership. And I try to bring that um, not only to my kids, because I practice it every day with five children, but the lessons that I've learned and the skills that I've honed in on with my family, I bring that to my jobs as well. So I bring it to the boardroom of the human rights campaign. I think that our boardrooms could use a little mothering. Politics can use some mothering. Um, Communities can use um, mothering. Like, how do we dwell together as diverse people, right? And, and right, and give each other space and and build each other up rather than than tearing each other down. I feel like we have a bit of a tear down culture that happens, mm-hmm. and, and mothering is the the you know antithesis of that. It's it's supporting, nurturing, building, um, empowering. How do how do men fit into the equation when you because we is mothering something that can be done? Is it gender neutral? Is or is it just a feminine quality? Absolutely gender neutral. So I use the word mother because it's something I know well and I like the sound of it. Um, but it is when I when most people speak of parenting and mothering, there is an assumption that we're talking about um, heteronormative adults, two big adults, heteronormative adults uh, raising some small people. Um, we're thinking usually it falls within white culture. It falls within upper middle class culture. We have literally you know, subconsciously and consciously thought of parenting and mothering as heteronormative, cisgender, um, almost even white middle-class culture. But when I talk about it, I'm not talking about um, that at all. So for me, mothering can be done. Again, it's a, it's a um, type of leadership quality that can be used by um, all genders, all races, anyone from any socioeconomic background. And it doesn't even, uh, I'm not speaking to biological families. So it could be families of choice. I've seen some of the best mothering um, done by um, queer folks, Mm -hmm. by trans men, trans women, by 
um, young people, mothering other young people, right, with zero dollars, no budget. So this is just, again, I want to I take it off of um, heteronormative and cis culture, and I want to say that mothering can be done um, by people who want to be leaders and build up communities. And for, for our listeners who, are, who want to bring the spirit of mothering and build the spirit of like architecture to their families mm-hmm. and their communities, you have in your uh, book, Chapter 19, you talk about your lab method, which is mm. it's like a tool that you can use to um, put mothering into practice. Can you walk our listeners through what that tool is, that method is, and, and how you used it for your own family? Yes. So the lab is um, something that came up. It's almost a, it's subversive parenting, right? Uh, sometimes we have to come That's around. the best the kind. Door. The best kind. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, in my house, we argue about so many things. I mean, it's like who gets the front seat in the car. It's. Um, I'm so happy know, I'm not religion. alone. I'm so happy I'm not alone with this. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's intense, right? And then and the fights become so dramatic and so um, mean spirited. Because things, these things matter, especially when you start adding more people in a space, right? And I, I see that in my house, but you can imagine what that means for a dense city like New York. When there are a lot of people, um, space is important, thought is important, you know? So anyway, so I've, I've created something called the lab. And whenever we have a disagreement, we lab it out. And we, the rules of the lab are very simple. We sit someplace on the floor so we're all level. Whoever has the proverbial microphone can speak as long as they wish. Um, you cannot interrupt, and it's not a debate. So you can't, it's not tit for tat. You just have to speak your truth when you have the microphone. So as an example, one kid who's a scientist, who's my um, 14-year-old son, from as far back as I can remember, he's been saying, look, I respect my brother. I respect you, Penelope. I'll use the right pronouns. And I believe that you can do anything in life that you want but scientifically speaking, anatomically speaking, you're a girl. And we just have to really be honest with each other. Anatomically, you're a female. And there's no science, he says, he, he says there's no science to prove gender diversity or gender fluidity or gender nonconformity. It's just a person's choice to be, you know, to act differently. And how does, Penelope, about- and how does Penelope react to this? Well, we all, you know, it's, it's hard to hear for all of us because I know the science is incorrect. I know there is science to prove gender diversity. But here's a 14-year-old saying what he wants and what he, what's in his, what he's, he's speaking his truth. And so when Penelope gets up, when it's Penelope's turn and Penelope has the microphone, Penelope says, well, brother, it's not always about science, right? It's not so sciencey all the time. And I'm not an opinion. I'm a fact. I'm here. <laughs> Transgender people exist. And I've proven it, period. Um, and besides, he says, you know, God has made me this way. This is the way God has made me. Cassius, when he gets the microphone back, he says, well, God isn't proven either. <laughs> so, <laughs> Cassius know, is going to be a captain of the debate team. <laughs> yeah. And so we talk about, so the, the conversation then goes into religion, right? And then, so it, there's a lot of... Um, talking going on and each kid gets a long time. So I have five kids. So that can be three hours. It can be two hours. It can be four hours. But what's interesting is what happens after we've exhausted the conversation in about an hour, the kids say, this is so boring. You want to go just play basketball instead? <laughs> Do you want to have some dinner? And, they move. and so they end up living life together and playing basketball and eating dinner 
even when they don't agree. And so the goal that I've set now is to not agree. It is the, there is the goal is not to agree. The goal is to discuss with decorum, because after that, after you've discussed it and each person has said what they believe and we've gone around and around and around with these ideas, the big idea doesn't seem so big anymore. And the foreign person doesn't seem so foreign anymore. It's just another concept. And, and, um, I, and so we've learned that. And I love the fact that you have not made this results oriented. Like we, we need to achieve a particular <laughs> outcome or there needs to be a resolution, but it's more a conversation and openness and ability to, to be in dialogue and, and just share what you, your perspective is without hoping it's going to produce a certain outcome. Because I feel like we live in a very outcome focused society mm-hmm. and we're sometimes too busy trying to get to a certain end result and we're missing these uh, nuanced uh, opportunities to truly understand each other. And they want they want results. I want results, but we have not been able to find them. <laughs> so like, you know, if we... But it doesn't prevent you start- from having the conversations, right? which is so beautiful, right. you know, to, just to right. keep on interacting, being, you know, engaging with one another. And I feel like I love also when you use the word decorum, because I feel like that mm-hmm. is... Such a fabulous word that is, you know, in such short supply in our our culture today, and and in our politics, and the way we interact with people, as as humans. Um, you know, Penelope obviously upended how you thought about your family in particular and gender more broadly. But I, I'm curious, your family's had other changes too. You you mentioned having five kids. I know two of them, you know, are you know have, are living independently now, studying abroad. How have you navigated the dynamics of just seeing your cha- family change from being, you know, a small unit at home to having, um, you know, its shape change by having kids move on? How do you keep people together? It's really tough. My natural ener- energy and instinct is to gather people. Like I'm the one I like this concept of and going back to architecture and, and mothering as building there's something called the mud sill that sits at the bottom of a home that stabilizes everything. And I think of mothering as the mud sill, right? Um, and so my instinct is to stabilize, to gather. You know, I do these 50-person Thanksgiving dinners. We all sleep over. We crash on the floor. Um, I like family sit-down dinners at the end of the night, even if we're arguing. So I love to gather my kids and their friends and friends of friends but as you know, as life goes on, you realize it's just not a series of cozy little gatherings. <laughs> and in fact, there's some really devastating blows um, that happen where you know it, you you separate. And some of those blo- some of those separations are great, like a kid goes to college. Um, and some of those separations are devastating, like a divorce. I've been divorced twice. Um, but. Over the years, my family has changed shape. I have one daughter who lives in Switzerland. I have another son who only lives a few miles away, but our lives are so different that we uh, we might as well be in you know Africa and Europe. Um, and that my three little ones are getting older and they want to spend less time with me. They want more time on their own. They want, as my kid said, I want complete independence. <laughs> and he was ten, <laughs> and he was ten when he said that. That's complete. So look, you know, I I'm. I am pained every time my kids take a step further away from me. And I, at the same time, I'm trying to nurture that. I'm it's, really trying to raise. Absolutely. Um, it's such a struggle. Independent thinkers. It's, yeah. it's such a, it's so um, 
the push and the pull between wanting your kids close, wanting to them to, you know, remain a, a certain age. And when they snuggle, my youngest still gives me hugs. Uh, and he's <laughs> such a, a cuddler. And I, but also the the dynamic of, of encouraging them to grow, of, of raising mm-hmm. them to to move beyond you. It's it's I think it's one of the hardest uh, ele- aspects of parenting. You know, well, look, I, to put it in perspective for myself, because, you know, I, I can cry myself to bed <laughs> to sleep every night, you know, sad about my kids not wanting to spend time with me. But what I've tried to remind myself is I'm raising my kids to be activists. And this particular time has heightened that and highlighted that. But I've always felt that way because I was raised by activists. I had a lot of um, social activists in my family, a lot of civil rights activists in my family. And so I've been raising my kids to be activists. And that means that they're not pretty, they're not perfect. Um, They're not even polite most of the time. (laughs) You're very honest. (laughs) You know, they're just... They can be really mouthy kids, but my goal is to raise activists. And when I keep reminding myself that, you know, when I lie in my bed by myself and my kids are doing their own thing, I remind myself, you're raising powerful activists. So let them, you know, experience all of this life and let them develop really strong opinions and let them be able to voice those opinions with decorum. And that's to, that to me is job well done. So yeah, I'm a little lonely sometimes. <laughs> 50 years old, nobody to snuggle with. That's so, but it's it, so it pays cute. off. I know. We, we um raising kids to have an opinions, to share them is something that you know, I think most parents aspire to, although I guess not all and and it it is something that we've struggled with in my own house as well. You know, having mm-hmm. kids, you know, when you raise kids who have their own opinions and debate and there's, you know, we've had so many negotiations over different things like curfew and, and family events and, and different things. And it's you want them to have their own opinions because that's how you're raising the activists, the people that are going to make a difference. You don't want them to be deferential to things that don't matter. But it's really challenging when you're living mm-hmm. through it, especially, I think, with a teenage daughter. I mean, Mine is is wonderful, and we've come out on the other side. But there were a few years where it was really, really hard, and I, my feelings were constantly hurt. I felt like um, <laughs> we were, you know, at loggerheads, and it was painful. But it's you know just part of the natural evolution, and and you know you just have to remind yourself this too shall pass. Uh, Jody, I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about uh, beauty. I know that you've run two different beauty companies, um, and I'm just curious about your take on sort of beauty and aging. Do you have a you know, my wrinkles are my smile lines approach, or is it more of, you know, I'm not going down without a fight, you know, bring on the racks. I'm kind of in between. Like some days I'm like, I'm so happy I've crow's feet. I've been smiling. And other days where I'm like, this could look different. Where, where do you, where do you, <laughs> where do you land on the spectrum? Well, I have a, also a, a dual a dual thought and dual approach. I like the concept of aging. In fact, before I'm 50, two years before I'm 50, I started telling people I was 50. <laughs> and my kids would correct me. They're like, you're 48. I'm like, no, I'm 50. Are you 50 I now? Are you 50 I, now? I, so this month, I, yeah, this month I turned 50 officially. Well, welcome um, to the club. <laughs> thank you. Feels good. Um, best club in town. So, th- So just as a concept, I really like it. I embrace it. I think we get older and smarter and cooler. And um, for in my in my case, I try to be more flexible as I get older. So that's always a good thing. Then there are these things that the physical body um, does that you know I could I, I work um, to 
<laughs> to re- to ease that that process. So I run a lot. I like the way my body looks better when I run. I like a toned body um, as opposed to an untoned body. My face, I use those little currents, um, those machines that you know that give little electrical shocks to the face to Ooh, keep my face toned. I need to know about that. You know, <laughs> they're they're great. I mean, I have these little little um, contraptions that I use that are probably more for just my you know this need to like be active in the process of aging when we just, you know, it's something that we, we can't stop from happening, but of course I want to be a part of it. Right. But you want to feel, feel good. I mean, I I started using like retinol a year or two ago. I have no, I'm not, I have no idea if it's making a difference, but it makes me (laughs) feel like, you know, I'm doing something and I I do want to take care of myself. So I, I totally relate to that idea of, you know, doing yoga, of trying to eat healthy, um, you know, making some uh, you're going to have to share the name of that machine because i i, I will i feel like i need that and, and maybe our listeners do as well but but also not not being so um so worried about it because there's there's a lot of freedom that comes with um with getting older and and worrying less about some of the things that distract you i think when you're young when you're much more yeah. focused on on the external and how you look versus how you feel inside. Mm-hmm. My mom, when we were young, my mom made us do um, a lot of mirror work. And so she played this game with us where we were forced to stand in front of the mirror with just like a t-shirt and underwear on. So we could really see our limbs and our arms and our face. Um, and we would have to stand there and hug ourselves in front of the mirror and then say, I love myself over and over again. I love myself. I love myself. And it was silly. And we would, at first feel really awkward and we hated doing it. And then after about five minutes of staring at yourself, you're laughing. And what this does is it really gets you to know your physical body. I mean, I can tell you exactly that my like lips look like upside down bananas and my ears look like little elf ears. I know where my fingertips touch my knees um, in terms of the length of my arms. I know my body. And I've had this kind of pretty good relationship with her. Um, Mirror work is really important, like seeing yourself, embracing yourself. I do most of my gym work um, in front of a mirror. And I've continued the, the practice of mirror work. I use the mirror just a lot for, for that mirror work and very little for like the vanity stuff. My vanity time in the mirror is probably 20 minutes at the most, um, including morning, afternoon and night. <laughs> um but I think, you know, if we can use the mirror in a different way, it actually will, um, in, you know, make us stronger, make us better, make us happier with ourselves. It's such an interesting idea because I, I, I feel like you, you often hear that people are like afraid to look in the mirror and they don't want to like, they don't want to get on the scale. They don't want to see themselves. And the idea of really of, of knowing your body well and, and knowing it's um you know, that it's beautiful. I love the fact that your mother encouraged you to talk to yourself in a positive way because the the longest relationship we have is with ourselves. We are in a <laughs> constant yeah. unending dialogue with ourselves and, you know, this internal conversation that's happening and that at a young age to start to train yourself to speak to yourself kindly. Because mm-hmm. I know that many, many women I know, my favorite yoga teacher always says, please be kind to yourself and each other when the class ends. And it's a lot easier to be kind to other people than it is to yourself sometime, you know, and to really start to train yourself at a young age to be your, you know, be confident, to be your own advocate, to to feel good about yourself. Your, mo- your mother sounds really wise. 
Um, I love the, the way you open your book, The Bold World, and I'm going to encourage listeners to, to read it. One of your first lines of the book says that you were taught by women and probably by your mother. You were taught that women are powerful, tenacious, and important, that we pull from limitless places, which is such a, a beautiful opening line. And I'm wondering, as you've gotten older, do you still feel limitless? Do you feel that getting older or aging puts limits on you in some way? It's mm, a good point. Yeah, I, I I struggle with that. I mean, I I do find that whenever I well, I'll say this: people break, women break, black women break. It is not um, there's not an infinite well of of energy. At some point, you know, enough is enough. And I I've, I've gotten to that point multiple times in life where I just didn't have any more to give, and that's a scary place to be because I'm used to being able to find some reserve to go on as a mom, as a woman, as a wife, as an entrepreneur, I always can muster up something, but a couple of times in my life, I just did not have any more to give. And I had to rely on other people to really pick me up. But I, I so that, that I would say we can't over exhaust people because at a certain point there is a breaking point. Um, and then I would say on the, on, you know, just as, as, as much as I know that I also know that women have an incredible power, um, to regenerate. And so, you know, when mom says I need five minutes, those five minutes are regenerative. (laughs) When I go out for my run, I am, I'm, I'm, I'm processing all out all the shit and I'm building myself back up again. Um, and, and when we, when we go out with our girlfriends or when we, you know, read the books that we read, um, or close the door, those are regenerative, regenerative processes. And I think that allows even this 50 year old woman to have a lot more to, to give. There's a lot more I want to do. Um, and I've learned ways to um, keep myself, you know, up. Um, and so I heard the trick of life. Like, I think I, I heard this, like we are always under attack. The body is under attack from germs and viruses and assaults. But the trick is to heal faster, right? Do more healing than, than, than and faster healing than the attack is coming. So that means we constantly need to heal ourselves so that mirror work is healing that closing the door time is healing that you know sometimes i (laughs) some of my healing takes the form of using the word fuck (laughs) (laughs) it just feels good i I like to say it i say it out loud a lot and that to me just gets rid of all the the gook in my in my in my head um Absolutely. My, my, um, my iPhone keeps trying to correct it to, to, to ducking. I'm like, no one is saying <laughs> ducking, you know, like Siri, get, get with it. <laughs> there's a, there's a, um, you have to drop the big, that I, I, you have to drop the F word. And I, I've learned, I, well, I call it like, you know, untethering and it's a really hard concept for women and for mothers because we learn to, um, find value in our families and our, you know, in our morals. But for me, what I learned through divorce is that that period of detachment, when you have nothing, all the good stuff is gone, your kids are gone, your spouse is gone, uh, maybe even your home is gone. I found that that it's really a scary place. But if you do it enough, if you learn to detach, um, and you actively detach, then when you come back to the things you love, you have more insight, you're a better leader, you're a better listener, you have more vision. So I've done this now it's a part of my routine. I actively detach. And that means send the kids to dad's for, it's now a month at a time. They go to him for a month and then me for a month. 
So I have a month of detachment where I have to, don't have to cook a meal. I don't have to be, um, you know, nice <laughs> to anyone <laughs> in the house because it's just me. I can skip out, you know, before COVID, I would skip out to a movie and not tell anyone where I was going. Um, I would have, you know, with my boyfriend, we'd have sex in the middle of the kitchen table <laughs> in the middle of the afternoon. These are these are things that moms don't do. Right. I would even like even every mom, every mom listening like, right now is like, how can I do that? <laughs> I want to have it, sex it, on the kitchen table and see a movie in the afternoon. <laughs> it's so rebellious, even like so I, I, I gain a lot of um, I, I see myself as a person who accomplishes things. So my act of detaching was to not accomplish things. I would only read a portion of a book and never finish it. And that to me was um, detachment from the things that define me. So that's really important for women to do, to detach from the things that define you. If it's for five minutes, fine, or five days, great, but to intentionally detach. I also really find, I, lo I love the idea of detaching and taking, um, sort of upending your routines a little bit and allowing yourself just the freedom to be different than the sort of lane that you had put yourself in. And for for, for me, I, I, I detach by actually reading memoirs of other people, which is one of the reasons why mm. I loved your book. And I, I try to read people that are very different from me and having different experiences because it's so inspiring. This is why I love following Humans of New York on Instagram. I love hearing other people's stories, getting windows into them, and it allows me to be inspired by humanity because sometimes humanity feels really dreadful and upsetting. Um, but it also allows me to sort of look at my own life in an old world in, in a different way. So I, I'm really intrigued by your detaching. And I, I would encourage any of our listeners to, uh, if they want to practice their own untethering, to pick up Jody's book and, 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 you know, put themselves into a different experience and read it. Jody, I've been so um, excited to have you on the show today. I'm a big admirer of your work. You, you're such a beautiful writer. Your Instagram is so inspiring as well. There are beautiful um, little nuggets on it every week. So I, I want to have you tell our listeners where they can find more of you, more of your work, learn about your activism. Well, I, you know, I just, I'm thankful that you brought me on and I love hearing what you said because I do um, think that the book and on my life, although you might not have the same life and the same makeup with kids, you might not even have a, a kid who identifies as trans. I wrote the story so that we just as, as parents can be better. How do we shift? How can we be more flexible for the ones we love? So thank you for seeing how universal um, this is. My book is called The Bold World, and you can get it really anywhere, um, all the major outlets, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Also on my website, which is jodypatterson.com. And on Instagram, where I spend so much of my time, <laughs> uh, I'm Jody Patterson on Instagram as well. And I, it's funny because my kids and I, we argue it, over it all the time. And I say, but this brings business. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, say, and you have an exciting You have an exciting new project coming. Tell our listeners what it is. So my next book out is a children's book that I wrote in conjunction with my kids. And it's called Born Ready, the true story of a boy named Penelope. And it, that's his perspective, his voice on what it was like being different and how he was able to successfully um, ch change the community, his community and how they thought of him and how they saw him and, and, um, and how they support him. So Born Ready, A True Story of a Boy Named Penelope is my next book, and it's a children's book um, out by Random House. 
I, I've pre-ordered it. I'm really excited to get it. Jody, thank Yay. you so much for being with me today. It was great to, to spend this time with you. Thank you so much. I, I, I love the conversation. Take care, Jody. Now we're going to hear from a listener who shares her own career reinvention after 50. And if you'd like to share your story, please visit us at acertainagepod.com. My name is Mindy Germain. I just turned 50 and launched my own consultancy focused on sustainability and resilience. I help clients trying to build a stronger and healthier tomorrow, develop science-based public outreach, education, and advocacy programs. After doing this work for over 14 years as both the executive director of an environmental nonprofit and serving as a Long Island water commissioner, I decided it was time to take a bold leap and become my own boss. We love bold leaps. Congratulations, Mindy. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women over 50 who are aging without apology. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please spread the word. You can help us grow by heading to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And visit us at acertainagepod.com for show notes and bonus content. Special thanks to Michael Mancini Productions, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time. And until then, age boldly, beauties. Beauties.